you so much. Like Tim said, my name is Doug Brown. I'm the high school pastor here. And in true student ministries fashion, we will transition from a paper snowball fight to talking about Jesus. So if you can transition with me, today we, I have the privilege and the honor to be able to speak to you today. And what I'm talking to you about is I am going to be ending the followers series. For the last 12 weeks, we've looked at the followers, people who have interacted with Jesus and responded to him in certain types of ways. And out of their responses, we've learned things. Today, I have the chance to talk to you about Magi, the Magi, and Herod. So in preparation for that, open your Bible up to Matthew chapter 2. That's where that story is. And as you're doing that, You can pull out your bulletin, which has this outline, which you could follow along in there with that. And as you do that, I want to talk about something that's particular to all of the followers in our series. All of these followers have had the truth, the reality, and the power of the gospel of Jesus come into their life, and they respond to it in a certain way. Like I said, those responses are the things that we can learn and do do in our lives. But before we even get into that, I want to talk about the core of what that even looks like. How do we actually even respond to things? What does response look like? Because if that's at the core of what's happening with all of these leaders and all of these followers, how then can we respond? How do you respond? Is it possible to respond? So let's talk about that response. Let me help you understand it. And then I'll give you some pictures. And then we'll see how the Magi and Herod respond. Here's what I'm saying. Something comes into your life, whatever it may be. Say it's a big dog or a a fire or news about something. Whatever it is, it comes into your life in a way. And then based upon a couple things, you must then respond to that thing that's come into your life, right? Based upon the truth and the reality of what that thing is, based upon your prior experience with it, and then based upon also your relationship to the thing, you respond. Does that make sense? You get that right? Yes. Okay. (laughs) Let me illustrate it for you with a couple examples. Say, for instance, this man comes into your life, right? The reality, the truth, the glory, and the majesty of Matt Davis dressed up as his VBS character, Hawkeye, comes into your life, right? Say, as in memory, or maybe you're at VBS for the first time, and this is who shows up. This is in your life, and now you have to respond to Hawkeye, who is just so cool looking, right? With the moon there in the background. That's not the moon, it's a balloon. Um, (laughs) I got one person. (laughs) You respond. You respond how? Well, you respond based on the truth and the reality and who Matt Davis is dressed up as Hawkeye from VBS you, base, you, you respond based upon your prior experiences with him and your relationship with him, right? And for some of you, you kids out there, maybe you're like, you see this, yes, it's exciting, it's VBS week, water day, recreation, Bible stories, missions, it's so exciting, it's the summertime, how fun, VBS week here at Calvary, oh, the best time ever, right? But for me, when I see this picture... I start to search for tables that I can crawl under. Maybe perhaps a pair of handcuffs that I could chain myself to the ground. Because if you don't know who I am, you don't know me very much, I am terrified of heights. I don't like going up on ladders. I don't like roofs. I definitely don't like airplanes. 
I definitely don't like jumping out of airplanes, and I'm very afraid of going high up in the air. So when I see Matt Davis in his VBS flight school outfit, what that represents for me is it means that I'm most likely going to have to go skydiving, and that is something that I'm terrified to do. In my nightmares, Matt Davis appears in his VBS flight school outfit, and I just start to sweat. There's a lot of sweating that happens. I think I had an actual panic attack the day I had to go skydiving because I'm so afraid. So for me, do you see what I'm saying? Based upon my prior experiences with Matt, what I know to be true about my relationship with him is that he's going to force me <laughs> to jump out of a plane or do something like parasailing or all the other terrible things you made me do. That's what that means to me, right? So that I'm going to respond in a certain way and then you're going to respond in a certain way. One more. Can we do one more? This. All of you know Rick Bergstrom, and all of you know that he has a boat. <clears throat> he's not here today, I don't think. He was here first service. But Rick Bergstrom, he used to be a chairman of our elder board. He has an awesome boat, and it's a beautiful boat. And maybe you're a boat guy, which I don't really know what that means, but maybe you're a boat guy, and you look at this boat and you think, that boat looks awesome. It has flames on the side of it. It just... From the picture, it looks loud. It is loud, but it looks loud. It looks fast. How exciting. I want to go out on the river. I want to explore and have fun and do all that kind of stuff. And this to you, the truth and the reality of Rick Bergstrom's boat represents to you, and based on your prior experiences with, with Rick and boats, a fun day at the river, right? Fun, relaxing, vacation. Now, if you're a young adult or a college student or in high school, or hung around Rick Bergstrom long enough to actually go on his boat, you know that this usually represents this. What's happening behind Rick Bergstrom's boat? Those are two human beings, first of all. And secondly, they're supposed to be on that tube, generally. And normally when you're behind Rick Bergstrom's boat, the skin on your knuckles, the parts here, are just flying off faster than you can grow it back. So you're just bleeding <laughs> and you're flying on a tube round and round and he's laughing and you're not sure what he's laughing at and there's just the sound of like a thousand engines is what it feels like going and then the next thing you know you're in the air and you see the air, the ground, the air, the water, the ground and then you become very well acquainted with a large body of water. That's generally what happens behind Rick Bergstrom's boat and for me when I see Rick Bergstrom's boat I think oh no. <laughs> For most people, fun, relaxing day at the river. For me, I'm just filling out insurance forms because it's just, it's, I know high school students are somehow going to be in pain. But no, everyone has fun, don't worry. Sort of, it's kind of fun. Um, but in that, those are silly, fun examples, right? Kind of nothing examples. But it, it brings about the truth that when something comes into your life, you have to respond to it. And generally you respond based on the truth of what that thing is your prior experience with it, and your relationship to that thing. And it's easy to see how this can translate into very serious things. All it takes is for someone to get very sick with a, a well-known disease. You could pick which one it would be. And then based upon the truth of what that would represent, your prior experience with that, you're going to have to respond. Or a, a myriad of things. You could fill in the gaps. Things come into our life. Generally, the ones we think about most are the serious ones. These serious and sometimes sad things come into our life, and then we have to respond based upon what we know to be true about them and our, our prior experiences. So the question then becomes, at one point, one day, you will have to, you or you already have responded 
to Jesus. The incarnate God will pour himself into humanity in the form of the baby Jesus and the truth which that represents, the power that that represents, that will one day and in a way every day become a reality to to you and you will then have to respond to that. And there are very different ways that we can respond. And that's where this story and our morning collide. Because the Magi and Herod are going to respond in two wildly different ways. Let's talk about it. If you have your Bible, open it up, and you should have already opened it up, to Matthew 2. Our story starts like this. In Matthew 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Now, we must stop there. Because... For you to fully understand how that these two people are going to respond, the Magi and Herod, you have to know who they are, and you have to know how they would respond. Because if our responses are based upon the truth of the thing, and our prior experiences with the thing, well then you have to know who they think Jesus is, Magi and Herod. You have to know their prior experiences with him, so that you can appropriately see how they would respond. So who are the Magi, and who is Herod? The Magi. How many of you have a Christmas card? You probably, all of you have seen the Christmas card and there is like the three wise kings and they have crowns on and they're marching through the desert, generally on camels. The deserts are always very hilly. I don't know why. They're more longer, I think. But there's palm trees and you think the three, or you have the nativity set with the three kings. One of them's always kneeling. One of them's always has a very hunched back normally. For some reason, the hunched <laughs> And they're there, right? And you have the picture of these three kings. It would be well for us to have a more realistic understanding of who the Magi were. Because if we're going to see how they're responding to Jesus, we then have to know who they truly were. So let me paint for you a picture of the Magi that would be different than what you normally hear. The Magi translates in Greek. It's a Greek word, which means wise men. So it's the wise men, right? But these wise men who are traveling to Jerusalem, it could have been three of them. Most likely it was more. We don't know. But these magi weren't just magi existing out in the desert on their own. They existed in the lands of Persia and Babylon, which is not Rome. Rome ends, and then this is the lands beyond that. At one time there was the Rome, but at this time it's not. And they live out in the desert, but they don't live just on their own. They live in schools or in houses of magi, of wise men. And they live in castles. And these men then are hired by kings to advise them on things. Why? Because these magi were experts. They were experts in astronomy. They were experts in prophecy, in scriptures, in writings. They knew how to interpret dreams. They would be brought in in certain circumstances to help these kings. Think about Daniel when he was exiled to Babylon. He advised the king. He helped interpret dreams. He had visions. He had prophecies. Even these wise men that were out there, some of them, people even think that some of these wise men were Jewish people. They don't know if they were the ones that came to Jerusalem, but that's who these people were. They were experts in Jewish prophecy because the Jews have been exiled to Babylon. So of course they know Jewish prophecy. They were experts in scriptures and writings and interpreting things and looking at the sky and being able to see and know prophecy. So you have this group of people, a group, not just a couple, a group of men 
who would live together, who would have these, this, this castle or house where they would be doing these things. Astronomy, prophecy. And then they are Persian and Babylonian. So when they travel, they go and they march themselves through the desert, probably on order from one of these kings or by finance by one of the kings of that area. They are given a military escort to march through the desert. It's dangerous to travel through the desert on your own. So a group of them dressed in fine robes and nice clothing would travel with a military escort, probably with servants and people who would be helping them. They would have big canisters of water and tents and lots of things, gifts to travel along the road. It would take days and days and days to go. They wouldn't be on camels. They would be on big black stallions that would ride through the desert. That's how Persian and Babylonian people travel. And it would be a big group of them. Not just three men on camels. Because when these people show up to Jerusalem, they hold the attention of Herod and the entire Jerusalem people. That's a big deal. They're marching through the desert on horses and servants and a military escort holding flags of their country, marching toward Jerusalem. You see that picture? Now hold that in your mind and come with me over to Jerusalem where King Herod is the other part of our story. And King Herod is incredibly important to this story. He's the other half. Who is Herod? Herod is a king who grew up He is the king, but he grew up not as a Jew. He's not born a Jew. He converted to Judaism. So the Jewish people always had a hard time trusting him. He was king and ruled over the Galilee for a time. And then he lost his ruling. And he went to Rome and he begged the Roman Empire to be able to come back and be able to fight for Jerusalem. And he came back and he warred against Jerusalem for years and years and years. He fought and he fought. And he had to, through fighting and grinding to get this Jerusalem back, he gets it back. And when he gets it, more than anything else, he wants to keep it because he had to fight for it. People, don't already, people already don't like him. They don't trust him. So then he builds things to people's honor. He builds Caesarea Maritime, this beautiful city. It looks like you're standing in Rome. And as he builds this city, he builds it in honor of the Caesar. He builds Herodium, his castle. He builds a fortress on top of a mountain called Masada. All of this to protect himself to protect his kingdom, and to make sure that nobody messes with him. And then finally, most importantly, he builds the second temple to the Jews so that they would love him and they would let him be his king. But for as much as he fought for the kingdom, as much as he brutally took it from people, he was massively paranoid that it would be taken from him. Constantly, the whispers of someone taking his throne, he would snuff out with violence and aggression. He was an angry, a loud man, and he ruled very strictly. He was great in that he built a lot, and he expanded the borders, and he, he held a good relationship with Rome, but he was paranoid. So you have this paranoid king who's doing anything to keep his kingdom, and now you have Men from the east, nobility, wise men, marching with a military escort on big black horses with servants and tents and all this stuff, marching up to Jerusalem. And these two are going to massively collide in our story in Matthew 2. Read with me. I'm going to recap the first verse. 
because it's exciting and it makes sense. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, now in front of Herod and in front of Jerusalem, these wise men who have marched up into Jerusalem with their big caravan of people, they say, where is he? And then I could see in the scene, this is the moment where everyone is waiting. Everyone is, has tension built up. What is happening here? The Jewish people don't know what's going on. They are thinking, these people aren't Roman. Maybe this is a war. Maybe they're here to declare war. Maybe when they say, where is he? They're looking for Herod because they're here to declare war. Maybe they're looking for Herod because they're looking for someone they lost. Or they're here to advise Herod. No one knows what they're going to say. And looking to Herod, and in Herod's face, they say this in verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. Yes, Herod would be very troubled. Hold the two pictures of the people that I told you in mind. The Magi marching in from the desert. Herod in his castle in Jerusalem. They two meet. And here's the, the distinction. When the Magi get there, they don't say, where's the Messiah? Where's Jesus? They say, where is he who is born king of the Jews? They just looked the king of an imposing empire in the face and said, where is he who has already been born king of the Jews? They just looked Herod in the face and said, you're not the king. Where's the king? Because we've seen and we know the prophecy and we are looking for the one who's been born king of the Jews. What is Herod supposed to respond? What is he supposed to do? I could see him sitting there thinking, what are you talking about, king of the Jews? I'm king of the Jews. Not only is this a whisper of someone taking over their throne, the magi, the men from a different country, marching up, the wise men have just informed him that the new king lives in Israel. Now. And they're there to worship the new king. Do you think Herod would be upset? Yes. I'm surprised he didn't chop all their heads off. But he doesn't. What he does is he does this. He says this. Gathering together in verse 4. Gathering together the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired to them where the Messiah was to be born. When they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it was written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means among the leaders of Judah, are no, no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Herod doesn't turn around and say, Messiah? Born king of the Jews? I don't know what you're talking about. Explain to me this one born to the Jews to be king. No. He knows who they're talking about. He knows that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And he knows that that's happening. When he turns to his wise men and to his counselors, he doesn't say, who's the Messiah? He turns and says, where's the Messiah? Not, where is he so that I can worship him? Where is he because I want this over? How dare he come in the midst of my ruling? And in chapter 7, it says, in verse 7, it says this, Then Herod secretly calls the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. 
And when you found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. That's not what he wants to do. He's not there to worship them. But for us, the most important part is this. How does the Magi respond? The Magi respond in worship and offering. What it says next is this, in verse 9. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. How do the Magi respond? The Magi know that the truth of who Jesus is is absolute. That a king will be born in Israel who will rule over Israel and will be the savior of everyone. They see the prophecy that it's coming true. They see the star. And they travel. They sacrifice themselves. They put themselves in harm's way to go into an opposing empire's land and to march up to the king and not say, oh, we're looking for the Messiah. They say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews because you are no longer the king of the Jews? There has been a newborn king. And we are here to worship him. And when they get there, they see the child Jesus. They don't, they're, not, they're not swayed by the child. They don't say, how could it be a child we're leaving? They fall on the ground and they worship the newborn king. And they bring to him offering. That's how they respond. Based on the truth of what they know to be Jesus. And based on their experiences that this will come true. Then Herod responds. In verse 17, 12. I don't know where those numbers came from. 12. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. And now, when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. And they get up and they leave. How does Herod respond? He responds in fear. When the news of Jesus first comes to him, by way of the Magi marching into his city and saying, where is he who's born king of the Jews? You are no longer the king. He's not happy. He's not joyful. He's not anything but fearful. Because that means he is no longer able to be on the throne. There is now somebody new that will, he will have to worship. He will have to put Jesus on the throne. Jesus is now above him, and he doesn't like that. He's fearful that his th- kingdom and throne will be taken from him. His fear turns to anger. And out of that fear and anger, he tries to destroy Jesus. Because it's the only thing that he can do. Destroy Jesus because if I don't, I have to worship him. So the question inevitably becomes, it has to become, based on these two responses, how will you respond? If Herod is responding out of fear and anger, the Magi are responding out of worship and sacrifice and offering. How then will we respond? Because the truth of who Jesus is, like I said, is absolute. And it happens every day. Jesus lives and continues to live in our lives and speak into our lives. And when that happens, we have to respond to it. 
I'm going to challenge you to respond appropriately. And to illustrate how to respond appropriately, I have to do something. Because I think there's an important distinction when it comes to us responding appropriately. And to do that, I have to take this balloon that says happy birthday. I don't know why. But I have to take this balloon and I have to blow it up until it explodes in my face. It's the only way I know how to do that. So, are you ready? Should I? First of all, children in the room, are you okay with that? Yes? Can I get a yes? Yes. Now, when I do this, it's going to be loud. I did this first service. Most people in the back row passed out. It was so loud. So begin to prepare yourselves that it's going to be loud. If you're hard of hearing, not if you're hard, if you're sensitive of hearing, I don't know what that would be, but if you're sensitive of hearing, you should probably start to plug your ears because I'm going to blow this up. I'm going to get lightheaded. It's a very large balloon. If I fall over, I'm looking to you, Matt Davis. You've got to revive me. And I'm going to stand up here and blow this up until it just explodes in my face. Do you? And out of this, I'm going to teach you something about how we can respond. <clears throat> First step, power stance. Because you don't want to fall over in the midst of this. Should I face this way? <sighs> i got to catch my breath. I'm serious about the ear plugging thing. So if you're, at, you can, if you're, it's okay. If you're scared, just go for it, you know? Split, RJ, plug your ears. I understand. <clears throat> You probably should turn my mic off too, or else we'll have to buy a new sound system. <laughs> you ready? Okay. Okay. First step done. I'm already getting my head. I'm going to pass out! (laughs) Are you ready, Matt? I could pass out any moment. 
I think I sent spit into the eighth row. I'm sorry. <laughs> Dave, that went way longer than in first service. It's like this big in first service. It's the size of the entire pulpit. <clears throat> Where was I? Should we close in prayer? I'm sweating. There's sweat right here. There's shrapnel of balloon all up here. <clears throat> Oxygen levels returning. Why did I do that? No, seriously, why did I do that? <laughs> no, why, I did that to illustrate something. I had to do that. It's painful. I hope to never do that again. Why did I do that? To illustrate to you that in responding, there is a way in which we must respond in the right proportion. There's a right level of response. If I was blowing that balloon up, I mean, it got huge, right? And say you were standing right here and you just nonchalantly stood there, no big deal, you would be like, you're not responding appropriately. There's a balloon that's about to explode in your face. I had to take a power stance so I wouldn't fall over. You guys plugged your ears, you watched, you waited, you gasped, because that's the appropriate amount of response. But to act like nothing's happening would be the wrong response because it would not be in proportion to what's happening. If I were to call you and tell you your house is on fire and you were at home and you responded to me and you said, no big deal, I think I'm going to watch an episode of Seinfeld, I'll probably grab my family photo albums after that and head out. That would be the wrong response. Why? Because it wouldn't be in proportion to the action that's happening. When action happens in our life, you have to respond proportionately. I blow a balloon up that turns into a giant balloon, and if you're standing right here acting like nothing is happening, you are not responding correctly. Because it's not enough. The action requires more. And then, you take into account that the God of the universe has a plan for salvation and pours himself into the human of Jesus and lives every day towards our redemption, teaching us, growing us, and in the truth of that, we have our salvation. That reality, that truth, that action comes breaking into your universe every day. And every day, people have responded to this. If you take Magi, if you take Herod, you can at least say they responded in the right proportion, the right amount. The Magi left everything. They traveled to a foreign country. They walked up to the king of Jerusalem, the king of the Jews, and said, you are not the king of the Jews. We're here to worship the one born king of the Jews because he is the, sa the savior. He is our salvation. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Herod knows what that means and does everything he can to destroy him. People have been martyred. Wars have been fought. People sacrifice themselves to go to the ends of the world to tell people about Jesus because that is the correct amount of response. And somehow us 
Some of us, our culture, certainly at large, has taken a position that people in the church have seemed to never have taken. There's a postmodern way of thinking that says, right, that's the action, and that can be true for you, but for me over here, I'm just not going to make a decision about it. What? How is that possible? Should I say it louder? Use bigger hand movements? It wouldn't do anything. We have to correct our thinking. Because we've taken an option no one has taken before. An apathetic one. It doesn't affect me either way. We can't do that. We then have to respond appropriately. Paul calls this walking in the manner worthy of the calling. In Ephesians chapter 4, here's what's happening. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is saying, this is who God is. This is the amazing work that he's done for you. He moves on to say, this is who you are without him. You are nothing. You cannot save yourself. You are in desperate need of a savior. And then he goes and he says this in chapter 4. Therefore, because of who God is, because of who you are, because of what he's done for you, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Because of what God has done, because of who we are, Because what the Savior being born in Bethlehem means, we respond in a manner worthy of the calling. It looks like sacrifice, worship, and offering. The Magi sent out and put themselves in danger. They sacrificed themselves. They put themselves in a position where they fell on the ground and worshipped the child Jesus. And out of their worship, and in response to Jesus' divinity, They give him offering, and they give him gifts. For us, what we need to do is we need to pursue the reality and the truth of who Jesus is. And in searching for that, we will find our appropriate response. In searching for that, we will find that sacrifice makes the most sense. And that laying down our will, taking ourself off the throne, makes the most sense. And that we will lay us, our side down, that we will decrease and he will increase. And that will look like worship and, and, and sacrifice and offering. And ultimately, what it will look like is allowing God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to completely remake you through your faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it will look like. You can't just say that and hope for it. You have to go back to the beginning And know about Jesus. Study his words. Study who he is. Know yourself and how broken we are. And see that Christ came for us in the most broken of our times. And out of that, the most natural response is a large response that says, I will sacrifice and lay down my will. I will worship you. I will bring offerings to you as you remake me. That's the story we learned from the Magi. Let's respond in worship an offering. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for this church. Thank you, Lord, for allowing me to grow up here. This is my family, God. I thank you that I got to talk to them today. Lord, I pray that as we move forward, 
these people would be affected by you. That the truth of who you are, that the reality of who you are, would come crashing into their world every day. Make them aware of that. God, I pray that they respond appropriately, that they search themselves, that they know you, and they allow you to remake them. God, we love you so much. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.